This is Mission.org. I think we are at a super exciting time in history. And I say this not just because I'm from the technology industry, but in general, I think the pace of change is, I mean, for someone who's comfortable with change, this is like the most brilliant time to be in. The tech revolution is fast upon us, and marketing professionals are quickly finding ways to adapt. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron. Today's guest is Arun Kaval, the Chief Marketing Officer at IBM Consulting Asia Pacific. As part of one of the world's largest technology corporations, Arun welcomes the tech boom with open arms, but believes that marketers must lean in to establish long-term bonds with their clients. Tune in for his take on the evolution of marketing. I think one of the interesting questions I want to start with is you you seem to be yet another modern day marketing leader who started off as an engineer. So there's this mechanical engineering background, and I love the dance, the, the bobbing and weaving into marketing, of course, being at the helm uh, of IBM in Asia. Talk about that journey, if you will, from kind of the engineering beginning to now carry us through to, of course, being a CMO. Tell us that story. Sure. I mean, this is like the favorite part of my, my response when I talk to um, youngsters who ask me about career. I started off my career building earth-moving equipment, you know, those big excavators and you know, dump trucks and so on. Then I went on to building um, processes and uh, systems. Now I build PowerPoint decks. So it's <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's a career journey. Uh, but jokes aside, I think uh, each each of those I couldn't I wouldn't have traded for anything else because they all played a role in shaping uh, not just my career but even my personality. I would think as an engineer, do I use what I learned in engineering? No, not really. But I think, do I use how engineering shaped me as a person and my mindset? Absolutely, every day, every minute. I take pride in the fact that I, uh, or at least I would like to think that I'm a problem solver. And I don't think that problem solving ability or skills would have come about if not for my engineering background. You know, you're comfortable dealing with the ambidexterity of looking at systems as a whole, at the same time, sort of the, retaining the ability to decompose that whole into manageable parts and understanding how each part works with the other. So I think, yeah, I mean, engineering background probably shaped me who I am. So what was the first kind of the, the spark into marketing from engineering? What was it a, a book, a project? What was the interest? You got exposed to marketing at some point in the journey. What was that first kind of dance with marketing about? Oh, well, I think there's a funny version and then there's a, probably a little bit more real version. I think even when I was doing my, you know, the first job out of uh, engineering, I mean, I was in an engineering firm. It was a, uh, it is a big engineering conglomerate based in India. It does everything from, I think, building rockets and <laughs> nuclear missiles wow. and airports all the way down to, I think at that time, they used to also manufacture these bottle caps, everything in between. So I was in a, I was really fortunate to be in a division, which was, uh, A, it was very small. So each of us had to do a lot of heavy lifting ourselves. And B, it was uh, business planning, looking at uh, how do you bring new products to the existing lines? How do you, in fact, go and create completely new product lines, working with foreign principles, technology transfer, 
working with government, getting permissions. It was a business development function. So in that sense, I think while it was an engineering firm, my job was uh, techno-commercial, if it, if it makes sense. Um, so I think that that really got me hooked to this whole notion of uh, thinking in terms of customers and you know the, the, the whole charm of seeing some concept come true. I think concept development, product development, product marketing was really what got me hooked into the function. The more funny version is uh, after spending so much time with machines, uh, you know, I just wanted to get to a function where I can see people. <laughs> so when I got into business school, I was given an option of, uh, I had to pick, you know, what I want to specialize in. I mean, operations management would have been the most logical, convenient one, given that it, it you know, fit fitted well into my background. But I said, hey, wait, I don't want to be spending all my time with machines all through my life. I've got to be spending time with people, uh, people from, you know, a lot more diverse background. So that's how I suppose, you know, that helped me uh, choose my course. Nice. Okay, cool. So I love it. So you got into the the product side of things and marketing on the product side, and that just grew in scale. And I can't really imagine right now what your focus is right now on in your role, you know, as CMO, IBM, Asia Pacific. What are you kind of most excited to be working on right now um, at this stage in the world and where you're located with the brand you're with? Like, I know there's a lot of things you could be focusing on at scale, at, at scale, but what's some of the, you know, one or two things that you're really kind of excited about making big bets on in your role currently? Sure. I think we, we, we are so super fortunate to be at a point in time in history where there's so much of transformation happening and it's happening at like rapid frenetic pace, right? I mean, we can see that happening in front of our eyes. I mean, just if you rewind the clock back to two years ago before the pandemic, you know, first announced its arrival, and to now, I mean, the world is so different and different, not just in terms of uh, all the all the negative things that have happened, but also in terms of how technology has, you know, taken front and square, right? I mean, it's just blown up. Even companies which were hesitant or, you know, laggards in terms of adoption of technology are now, you know, it's it's like front and square. It's a boardroom discussion. I think we are we are at a super exciting time in history. And I say this not just because I'm from the technology industry, but in general, I think the, the pace of change is for someone who's comfortable with change, this is like the most brilliant time to be in. And it also, it's great because um, it's also a time where the old models of, you know, I will go through a linear, whether it is product development, whether it is uh, coming up with solutions, fitting existing solutions to newer problems, pick any journey of how a customer problem gets solved. I think the old model of, you know, a linear development or a linear approach is all gone, right? Now we quickly put something out there, we create MVPs, we co-create it with customers, we test it out. And then, I mean, that, that really, really excites me because we are getting to solutions to problems in the fastest possible way. And those problems themselves are getting super complicated. So if you're someone like me who, who enjoys grappling with the, the most naughty problems, I mean, this is the the best time you could have been in. I love that. Is there any specific tech or trends, strategies, approach, et cetera, that, that you are betting on for the future? Anything specifically around trends or tech at all? Well, I mean, look, this is my personal opinion, right? I don't claim to be speaking on behalf of my employees. So I just want to get it out there. So personally, I think AI, obviously, it's it's a no-brainer. Everybody knows the, the potential of AI. And I, I'm super excited about what AI can do because rather than looking at AI as a substitute for humans, I think the, the real potential is when humans and 
technology, AI can come together in more meaningful ways. I can give you a couple of examples we have seen. It's brilliant, right? I mean, we have seen examples of people who are in the function of maintenance or, or people who come and fix your, let's say, an old, making this up, old printer or old boiler or whatever it is, right? Some of those skills have become sort of, I won't say redundant, but short in supply simply because the technology is a little old or it's so specialized that you can't find people everywhere to support, you know, you just can't find enough people to support all kinds of, uh, you know, installations, all kinds of customers. In a conventional world, you would either retire the technology or retire the person because there's just not enough work to keep that person busy. But now, I mean, I'm seeing some amazing use cases where, you know, we go and look at, we fit this person, let's, let's just, for example, call this person as, I don't know, let's call him as what Bob. Now, Bob wears an AR glass, goes on to the installation, and let's say wherever in the world there is a person who's skilled enough and resourceful enough to fix that issue, and that person has a little bit of a, what we call as a digital twin of that boiler or the printer or whatever it is that we are trying to fix, and gives instructions, and Bob sitting here can actually go and fix that. I mean, this wouldn't have happened, you know, without technology playing a coach, a tutor, and a hand-in-hand -hand role with humans. I mean, the potential for human and technology collaboration, AI playing a leading role in it is brilliant. It's, it's amazing. It's going to create a lot of new jobs. I'm actually very bullish. I don't look at AI as a, as a threat. Any science that you pick can be a potential threat. It, it depends on how you put it to use. And I'm very, very bullish on AI. Mm, okay. What are your thoughts on augmented reality? I spoke to a, a CEO earlier this week of a company called Zapper in the UK. They work with a lot of Fortune 100 brands, et cetera, and they're doing a lot in the AR space. Are you seeing anything where you're at around that? Would you have any opinions around AR? Yeah, I mean, the, the example that I just gave you is, is a classic AR example. We have seen a lot of gimmicky implementations to be very <laughs> you know, to be very precise. I think even IoT or, or any, any example of AR today has been very gimmicky, not really put to use to solve some real problems, but I think we'll get there. We'll get there once we get past the initial hype, um, initial gimmickry, I think we'll get there. Even marketing will obviously go through a lot of change once AR and the, the whole aspects of metaverse comes into you know, a little bit more reality. I think even the function of marketing is going to go through a massive change. Yeah, I mean, you, you have over 20 years of marketing experience at this point, right? If you go back to the, your start. So, I mean, you're, you know, I think someone like you has such perspective when you talk about the, the evolution of, of the marketer and, and where we're at. And like you said, there's so much changing and it seems like every day, every week, every month, every year, it's faster and faster. And so it allows us to solve problems way faster. It's such an interesting time to be a marketing leader. In your words, tell us about your role at IBM. Like, what do you focus on there as CMO of Asia Pacific? Sure. So uh, my current role, I, I wear two hats. Uh, the first hat is as a CMO of uh, our IBM consulting business. So IBM has two parts to us. There's a product business, which is all about hardware and software. It's a product business or a slash as platform business. We put out a lot of tools out there that helps people fix some real issues. And then there is a services business, which is a people business, where we have SMEs, we have experts aligned to different challenges. You know, it could be, for instance, uh, somebody who's an expert on supply chain consulting, somebody who's an expert on, let's say, customer transformation and developing brilliant customer experiences, and so on and so forth. So this is a people side of the business, which takes the tools out there, not just our own tools, but tools out there in the market, 
and brings it to um, you know work to solve client problems. So I support that part of the business, which is about uh, application of technology uh, and and process knowledge to solve some real issues. The other hat I wear is about account-based marketing. So I lead the account-based marketing charter for uh, Asia Pacific, which is another extremely important part of marketing. I mean, marketing, particularly B2B marketing, is getting into an ABM mission. Ah, well, you just said one of my favorite words, which is ABM. It's such an interesting thing to be chatting about in terms of marketing. And, you know, there's lots of different approaches to ABM, but I I would love to hear some, some more of your thoughts on this. And, you know, I think about these B2B buyers today are so fragmented and resistant and they're not very easy to connect with and they, you know, are making decisions in groups a lot of times. And so it's, it becomes an interesting dance with, with that, that B2B buyer. What are you learning uh, kind of in the ABM world with this, with this, that type of B2B buyer? Yeah, you're right on all counts. I think ABM is really a logical extension to my mind, at least it's a logical extension of how marketing has evolved. Back in the day, I, I don't know, let's say 100 years ago, 70 years ago, whenever, right? There was nothing called segmentation. We were just throwing things out there and what sticks, sticks and what doesn't, doesn't. So we were no wiser for any of the processes. We were just throwing stuff out there. And then somebody came along and said, hey, let's, let's, let's look at what is sticking and what is not sticking, where it is sticking and where it is not sticking. And then we said, you know, where it is sticking is what we call as a segmentation. And then we brought in segmentation. So segmentation was our first attempt at, you know, to make some sense out of the market out there. So ABM is, to me, a fine-tuning over the years of that segmentation approach. You know, the segments got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as we became more client-centric in our, uh, you know, approach in our go-to-market. So in that sense, I think ABM is, is a logical evolution. That's my first point. My second point is, you're right, I think the, particularly for uh, business-to-business buying, while it's easy for marketing, and we have always operated like this in the at least for the last 15, 20 years, we would say, hey, for this type of offering or a solution area, we define a typical persona, I mean, a CIO or whatever, right, chief financial officer or so on and so forth. And we have always operated through these stereotypes of personas, which is really segmentation. There is now a realization that while we define this one person as, as the buyer, very rarely is this one person solely in charge of the buying decision. So ABM is really an acknowledgement of the multiplicity of buyer roles that are involved. I mean, the way I look at it is, while we can say we are doing everything about one account, we are just marketing to a segment of one, but within that one account, there's so many different buyers. I mean, you can treat the account as a segment and the different buyers in the account as the different you know, uh, uh, mini accounts within that segment. So it's a microcosm of whatever we have done in the past, but it also requires us to A, acknowledge that um, and, and do, you know, in terms of our messaging, in terms of uh, our engagement, in terms of our content pieces out there, we got to therefore customize it to the different buyers within that account. Mm. Yeah, it's such an interesting path. You know, a lot of the folks that we're certainly connecting with on, on our network, but also our partners and who we're, it's, it's ABM and this B2B ABM journey is, is super top of mind. And so it's been very interesting. And then with some of the intent data that you can get now with some of these platforms to really, you know, see who's looking and how they're looking and how they're engaging with your content or your competitor's content, that stuff just wasn't available, you know, in years time. Now there's so much intelligence now. What is your relationship with velocity and growth? Because you have so much 
support, resources, technology, creative, brilliant people working with you and alongside you, what does that do for your, just your hunger and appetite for getting to the goal fast and and growing faster? And how do you balance that? Do you find that you have everything you need to be successful or, or do you, or do you also kind of think, ah, I want to get, I want to move quicker. I want to move quicker. Where do you play in that, on that line? Wow. Very interesting question because I think we got to find that balance. Very often the temptation to define velocity in terms of the velocity is you know, important. It's an imperative, but we should resist the temptation to redefine velocity in terms of myopia, because that's, that's a trap that very easy to fall in, particularly for marketers who are under constant pressure to deliver pipeline and revenue and so on. Um, I think to me, it's about defining who you're marketing to. Again, one-on-one of marketing, defining who you want to market to, and then uh, engage them in ways that make sense to them. For example, let's say you're trying to market professional services versus, let's say, products, right? Products, let's say, of software, for instance, you know, tools. You do, you, you'd, you'd market the two very differently. For professional services, obviously, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, these are not off-the-shelf solutions. These are custom solutions with a little bit of standardization, obviously, but by and large, these are very specific to the client and it involves a lot more of gestation um, period, right? I mean, you've you got to sit down, understand, and you know, it's, it's very bespoke engagement in that sense. Velocity is desirable, but it is secondary to delivering that bespoke customer value. So if you pursue velocity there, uh, to the exclusion of uh, value, I think we have a fundamental problem on our hands, right? But on the other side of the table, when you're in a product business, when you're, you know, platform business or a product business, you would obviously pursue velocity with greater rigor uh, because that's where you're looking at an engine, right? I mean, you got to focus on the engine here as opposed to going in, individually for every customer because then you're just not scalable. So so the bottom line is, you know, are you pursuing scalability or are you pursuing value? Is it the volume or is it the value? I think that de- determines, um, you know, how, how your marketing approach is going to be. I don't think there's a standard answer to this. I, lo- I love that. I love that answer. That was great. I mean, just to consider both sides of, yeah, the product side versus the services side and, and what you, yeah, what you choose to focus on there. I, I love that answer. I have to ask this as an aside, Arun, you mentioned in your LinkedIn profile that you formally hold a Guinness World Record. <laughs> what is your record? Oh, man, this is, uh, this is oh, 10 years ago, I think. Yeah, 2009, probably. Uh, I was just a cog in the wheel. So we, we brought, a, brought together a whole bunch of people in Singapore. And this was uh, related to my, my major passion, which is badminton. Uh-huh. And this is the world's largest rally in badminton, which unfortunately got broken a couple of times since then. So that's why it's former. The world's largest rally? Rally in badminton, yeah. It's it's uh, it's a bunch of people who came in and then they took, take turns and they hit a shot and then run and somebody else come. Okay. Yeah, continuing rally. How many people were there for years? Oh, I think it was 96, probably. 96 or 97. Wow. And so you everybody's keeping it keeping it in the air yeah. as, as long as you can. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. I did see somewhere article or something where you you still play badminton like weekly or at least you you used to play regularly. You still you still playing? I still do. I still do. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I love That's it. That's my big passion outside of work. Okay. So have you heard about the pickleball craze? Oh yeah. It is. I I've seen quite a few of my um badminton uh, friends not 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 in Singapore, not in Asia, I think, but particularly in Europe. 
yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah, it's been going crazy here in the States. And I mean, a lot of my friends have left. They were all tennis players. They left tennis. They're like, no, we play pickleball <laughs> now. So it's it's a, it's a thing. So you, Arun, you have extensive experience you know, in the industry. And in today's conversation, I, I'd love to pull out some of your key lessons and advice for other marketing leaders. What mistakes do you see emerging marketing leaders make again and again? Oh, wow. Okay. Again, a very, very passionate topic for me, something that I constantly talk to um, young marketeers when I mentor them. I think there are certain rabbit holes, traps that, that I advise them not to fall into. One of the biggest rabbit hole is defining um, yourself as I'm a digital marketeer. I am a social marketeer. I'm a events person. You would be doing yourself, of course, fundamentally injustice, but you're also not doing justice to the client that you're seeking to serve by bracketing yourself into I'm this. Because I think the bottom line is as a marketeer, your question should be, you know, how do I deliver value and to whom and in how, you know, how many different ways I can deliver that value, right? So by calling yourselves in, in, in terms of, you know, taking the whole swimming pool and creating individual swim lanes, saying I'm a digital marketer, I will do what I have to do to the exclusion of everything else. It's it's being not just myopic, it, it, it takes away, it's, it's a value destroyer today. I mean, at some point it used to be, it used to, you know, digital marketing could coexist with the rest of marketing because it was a nascent science and, you know, it was fine. But I think today, this day and age, especially after the pandemic, if you if if say I'm a digital marketer, I will only talk in terms of clicks and impressions and so on. I don't understand about your pipeline and your sales pressures, Mr. Salesperson, we have a problem. So I would suggest, you know, my, my three, three pieces that I really, really ask any young marketer starting their career or even, you know, mid-career mid professionals in marketing is to focus on very simple three things. I mean, this is my mantra, right? I mean, this client centricity and it has got to be localized client centricity. It can't be because somebody out there in corporate put together, these are what our clients are saying, this is our segment, these are our standardized stereotypical bias. No, you got to localize it to that, that client in, I don't know, Vietnam or whatever country, right? Secondly, I think forging strong linkages between sales and marketing is so critical, so critical. Again, this is, a, this is one of the biggest pitfalls that I see in marketing. We sometimes tend to get overly intellectual within marketing and we lose the plot. I can talk at length about this piece. But yeah, uh, forging strong sales and marketing linkages and partnerships is super critical. So I would ask that uh, marketers focus on this. This is very much a part of the marketing process. It is not something that you do because it's good to do. It is an imperative. And finally, I think you got to build authentic market relevance and, and expertise in the industry or the market or the product segment that you operate in. I mean, again, another major rabbit hole that I want people to focus on and get themselves out of, which is you know, a lot of marketers are defining themselves in terms of the profession, uh, what I call as professional loyalty versus you know, being industry or product segment loyal. If you don't behave differently as a, let's say, a technology marketeer versus, let's say, a, you know, detergent marketeer or, or a, you know, shampoo marketeer, or, then we have a problem. You know, we are making ourselves redundant. We are making ourselves a back office function, which is such a crime, if you ask me, because as a customer, the first thing that touches the customer even before the salesperson calls on the customer is your marketing asset, your marketing process. 
as a marketer, I should be very kicked that I own the client relationship as much as any salesperson. But if I don't define myself in that fashion, if I call myself as, you know, I don't know, I'm a digital marketer um, or I'm a loyalist to the profession, then how am I any different from a tax professional or a legal professional or an accounting professional? I'm just a back office. So please, let's move to the front lines. We own the customer relationships. So those are my three big, big advice areas that I would suggest. I mean, I'm very, very passionate about this. I can talk. At length, this is super critical in my mind. Client centricity, sales and marketing partnerships, and um, you know, developing domain expertise. I love the simplicity and the profoundness of each of those three things. Those you could go deep on those, and you know, of course, sales and marketing alignment it comes up a lot in the marketing sales world. It's, it's this kind of age old thing that has existed, and these days, you know, there's a lot of technology, and there's a lot of ways you could build trust with the CRO or head of sales and sales teams. Can you maybe unpack some of the how, uh, you know, aligning sales and marketing and forging that strength and that, yeah, how are you How are you doing that at, at the level you're doing it now? What are some maybe lessons you've learned that work really well to do that out the gate and then consistently for the long term? Sure. I think for the sake of understanding of this topic and this topic needs understanding a lot more um, than just paying lip service to it. Let me give you an analogy of, um, again, falling back on my engineering for those who understand gears, so there's a larger gear and there is a smaller gear. Obviously, a larger gear wheel turns slower, but lifts a lot more load. It's a heavy lifting gear. A smaller the gear runs faster, but does not necessarily lift as much of load. So if you stick with this analogy, the smaller gear is what I call as a sales motion. And the larger gear is a marketing motion. So the smaller gear obviously turns, for argument's sake, four times a year, right? Because they operate on a quarterly cycle. And most most companies, the sales process still operates on a quarterly cycle. And at the end of the quarter, the meter gets reset, right? So every quarter, it's a new rotation for the gear. So speed is of essence. And obviously, the sales guys are looking at what can I close this quarter, right? Whereas the marketing gear needs to step back and focus on longer-term business development. You know, it rotates once in once in a year possibly or even longer, but it moves the bigger stuff. It creates larger value, slower but heavy lifting. The true value for the organization you know, happens when the two gears are meshed. If they don't mesh, you're doing your thing and I'm doing my thing and the twain will not meet and it's an unfortunate loss of value to the organization as a whole. So the question then is how do we make the two gears mesh? I think. I would look at it as coming together of three things. One is organization construct itself. I mean, as an organization, do we have the systems and the processes in place that force or at least encourage that kind of you know partnerships? Because we have seen in a lot of organizations, it's heavily sales dependent and marketing often takes a backseat of you know some salesperson says, I want this round table. Can you organize a round table? And Magan says, sure, how many people do you want, right? Or on the other hand, there's a small set of organizations, consumer goods, for instance. Marketing establishes the agenda. I mean, sales is primarily, let's say, a distributor or you know, the channel-led. So for technology in particular, I think we got to find that balance. We got to put you know, organization processes and structures need to find a way to get the best out of this synergy. That's the first piece of you know, organization structures. 
I think management systems, possibly the most hated two words, management system, <laughs> but the power of management system and deployed well is so phenomenal. I think putting down the right management systems, in fact, even simply defining better quality metrics, metrics that forces collaboration mm. is brilliant. I think that can be another prime mover. Um, and finally, I think sales and marketing partnerships comes down to the personality of the individual in that role. Some people are obviously a lot more collaborative, some are not. So it's also a function of uh, the personalities. But the first two, what I spoke about, transcend personalities, it's, it's, a, it's a more organized attempt to foster these, these kinds of partnerships. Mm. That's great. No, that's fantastic. I love the language around metrics that force collaboration. I think that's fantastic. And I think it's like, okay, how do we, how do me as head of sales and you have head of marketing, how do we come together, create or reprioritize metrics in a way that force us to, to, to work together to achieve this? And I, I love that. That's, that's really great. How have you become a trusted advisor externally with your clients and internally with your team? Sure. So I think one of the things that um, I have done and I would ask that marketeers everywhere do is build your own relationships within the client organizations that you serve. I mean, this goes back to what I spoke earlier, which is let's not be a sideshow. Let's not be a back office function because we are not. We deal with clients, as I said, as much and probably earlier than sales guys deal with. And if you do our jobs well, the sales process obviously becomes a lot more easier. So in your client organizations, the easiest piece to start is there is a marketing person in your client organization. Right? I mean, can we know that person? I've spent a lot of time traveling around the region. Well, before the pandemic happened, at least. I speak to a lot of clients. I make sure that I'm connected to them on, you know, for instance, LinkedIn. I have a personal network within the client uh, organizations. So I guess, you know, one could go on, but the point here is A, build your own relationships within the client organizations, independent of uh, the sales relationships, because obviously a sales relationship is in many ways, a little bit of a transactional relationship. You as a marketer can transcend that, that short-term nature of the transactional relationship. That's great. And that, that's, that's what I've invested in. As the marketing landscape changes, the traditional marketing playbook is becoming increasingly less impactful or, or even irrelevant depending on the approach and in light of that what type of skills do you look for when you're hiring and building kind of high performing teams tricky question again uh, there's no one single answer to that because it also is a function of what you're hiring for where you're hiring for you know hiring in and so on and so forth but i think again this may sound cliched but it is so true i think we got to hire people and we do hire people for uh, I mean, you can teach them skills in marketing. You can teach them skills about your product, but you can't teach people certain things like, you know, turning up, wanting to make a difference, you know, turning up with a lot of internal motivation. Those are things that I think are, are particularly after the pandemic, um, I think those, those soft skills are playing up a lot more. Resiliency, another, another skill that we, we don't talk enough of if I have to put certain, you know, put a ladder of skills, I think those soft skills would trump any of the hard skills today. Wow. Because I think that that's a hard skills could potentially be taught. What are you doing now with this kind of historic talent, you know, transition There's a lot of talent leaving businesses and a lot, the great resignation as we have all heard a lot about, but now you have an opportunity to retain talent, retain that talent. 
how are some of the ways that you're you're doing that, keeping folks, you know, engaged and connecting and collaborating at scale? Sure. Look, again, I'm not going to comment on my organization. It is what I'm seeing across the market, across some of my partner networks. I don't think we, you know, we've still seen the brunt of the great resignation, at least here in um, APAC. Yeah, I don't think we have we have still braced for it, right? It's it's not happened yet. Okay. It's happening in pockets, but it's not. It's 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 still a small wave. It's not a massive avalanche, so to say. You know, just just the fact that at least in you know some of the organizations that I'm familiar with, there's been an appreciation of people for who they are, and this has happened even before the the pandemic. It's not just a reaction to the you know the pandemic. I think at the end of the day, people like to be respected. People like to be treated as, uh, you know, human beings and with a little bit of care and respect. Mm-hmm. Everything else in terms of, uh, you know, the titles and salary and all of that. Yeah, I mean, we tend to put a lot of focus on those things, those labels. But I think the biggest thing that we could do is uh, respect people for the, the the life that they lead, you know, respect their time outside of work. Uh, I've seen some of our, you know, I said I'm not going to speak about my company, but I'll make an exception on this. We have always been, you know, encouraging our employees to work from home even before the pandemic came. So in that sense, it did not cause too much of disruption for us when in the last two years, Mm. people were used to working from home. And um, the fact that uh, we also did things like, you know, we took a work from home pledge where we said things like, you know, we are going to respect you if you don't want to be on camera. Because we respect the fact that, you know, you may have a dog at home, you may have young children at home. And if you are a working mother, you may not be in a position to put yourself on camera for whatever reason. So we will not force you. Things like that, you know. We said, you wow. know, if you, if you cannot make a, you know, if you cannot attend a call, nobody's going to go after you. I mean, we, we took our 10-point pledge and said, you know, we will follow these. Wow. And as managers, for instance, uh, I was also doing things like, you know, every Friday I would just pick 30 minutes off block 30 minutes time with each of my employees, 100% non-work related, talk to them, great. you know, just, just no, no penalty discussions. In, in fact, in a couple of instances, I even spoke to their family members because, you know, when you speak to employees, sometimes they want to put on a brave front. They won't tell you that they are stressed. I mean, unfortunately, it's still seen as a sign of weakness, right? To talk mm. about your vulnerabilities. We got to reach out. I think if you do some of those things, we have done some of those things, Rest of the things like, you know, position, title, money can potentially be less of an impact. We just need to treat people with a little bit more respect. I love that. Before we do the lightning round questions, kind of some fun questions. Do you have any, you know, final words for marketing leaders out there? Sure. I think because we have become as a function a lot more scientific as opposed, I mean, the, the balance between science and art, it's always been a very precarious balance in marketing, right? It's a cyclical evolution. You know, we went from science to art, we had some great TV commercials and advertising, and then now we're back to science thanks to digital marketing, which is great. I mean, it's it's an ongoing cycle. At some point, you know, the tide will turn and it'll keep turning. But what I see is today is there's a lot of focus on metrics and a lot of definition of marketing is around performance marketing. I would ask that we think about this, all marketing is not equal to performance marketing. So do we really need to micromanage every little thing? Can we avoid the urge to sort of, you know, track ROI for every touch, quantify every dollar that we spend? 
I mean, most most of your prospects will not even see your ad, right? Um, or probably they'll see your ad, but they don't click on it. They'll read your white paper, but they won't have a, you know, they won't pick up the phone and talk to your salesperson right away. They'll read your company profile in whatever, you know, Forbes or whatever, right? But they're not going to message you telling you that, hey, I read your <laughs> you know, company profile. They will become consumers long, long before they turn into customers of you know, paying clients. So while my argument here is while measuring ROI is good, and you know, we seem to be getting to a place where we are we are letting what we can measure dictate what we need to do to create value. So let's focus on creating value and avoid metric myopia. Uh, because just because we have the ability to measure a lot of stuff, we are letting that define our process as opposed to defining what creates value, what processes create value, and how do we measure that. So that's my first submission here. You know, Let's avoid metric myopia instead of focus on creating real value. The second one is very closely aligned to this, which is about let's stop stalking our customers. Let's stop believing that you know customer journey firstly, can or should be controlled at every step because you can't. I mean, you don't get to control that journey. You don't even get to know every touch point. So let's instead focus on making sure that as a marketeer, we are present out there with our voice and our content. So wherever and whenever they're making that choice, we become their first preference. Um, I mean, think of it this way. Google used to be a first step in, you know, in the research process, in a buying cycle. Today, it's probably the final gateway because a lot of things have already happened before they go and search for your company on Google, right? Mm-hmm. So I think let's not stalk our customers. Uh, let's just be there and uh, intercept them at the point when you know you need to show up. And I think the last piece I spoke about earlier, don't be professional loyalist. Understand the company that you're working for, the industry that you're operating in, and most importantly, the, the clients that you're serving. Today, if you want to learn digital marketing and you have never been a digital marketer, it's okay, go and learn it. And if you're a digital marketer and because world is opening up and, you know, for instance, face-to-face events are back, uh, if you have to go and learn about how to run face-to-face, how to become a hybrid marketer, I mean, I don't know if I can even call it as a hybrid marketer, do it. There's no such thing as a dedicated swim lane for a marketer. You got to do what it takes to, you know, make yourself relevant to the customer. So I will leave it at those three things. That's great. That's fantastic. I, there were many mic drop moments in that. I was just appreciated the the language and the way you, you phrased that. So um, let's do the lightning round. Are you ready for the lightning round? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is the Salesforce lightning round. So this show is sponsored by Salesforce. The listeners out there, all the CMOs and, and heads of marketing and executives who are coming up the ranks to become a marketing leader. We appreciate you listening. If you want to learn more about Salesforce, head to salesforce.com forward slash marketing and check out the world's number one CRM. We have Arun, CMO of IBM Consulting in APAC. Arun, first question of the lightning round. Who's the number one badminton player in the world right now? Victor Axelson. Nailed it. And what country is he from? Denmark. Gosh, I got to find a harder question for you, Arun. I I knew you'd get that one. What are you personally betting on for the future? Um, AI. Okay. If you have to build a marketing team from scratch tomorrow, what's the first role you're hiring? Why? Field marketing. Okay. Field marketing, simply because um, the most logical and the most important starting point as you put down the marker for marketing is to start with the customer 
and getting to start with the customer requires us to understand the customer, understand their needs, and then work backwards, you know, working with the rest of the organization to make the magic happen. So therefore, field marketing. I love that. I've gotten a different answer every time I've asked a CMO that question. They're always, they've said something different. Someone said data scientist, content marketer, demand gen. This is field marketing, get to the customer. I, I love it. Next question, what impresses you? What impresses me? I think I'm very impressed by people who show passion in stuff that they do, take the time out to prepare for whatever big or small demand that's placed on them. Uh, I think that, that you know, irrespective of the field, demonstration of that passion. And, and I think a slight twist to that, a deviant twist to that is going in with passion but at the same time, being a little bit more philosophical to sort of dissociate yourself from the outcomes is, is absolutely critical. So that's, I think, is really what I look for. If you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go? Wow. I don't know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I'd have said I would have wanted to go to the past and you know meet this person and so on and so forth. But I think I can't wait to travel into the future and see how the world looks like. Okay, okay. I mean, these are exciting times. It can only get more exciting. How far ahead would you go? Mm, how far would I go? Maybe 10 years because uh, okay. in 10 years time, I would still be mobile and you know, I'd <laughs> still be hopefully fit to see how the future looks like. Uh, still playing badminton, I'm sure, in 10 years. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> what is your favorite app on your phone? Non-work apps because I have a lot of work apps. And yeah, I say non-work <laughs> apps. Yeah, favorite personal app. Uh, I think my home camera um, apps, because I get to see my kid and my dog in action when I get some free time when I'm away from home. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, what's a skill you believe everyone should have? Soft skill? I, I think I spoke about this uh, previously. It's the same one. Um, be passionate when you go in, go all in, but also, you know, be ready to you know move on without being attached to the results. I think that's an important life skill, not just a career skill. I love it. Okay, in the same vein, if you could effortlessly pick up a new skill in an instant, what would it be? What would it be? A podcast host? <laughs> <laughs> Best answer by far. <laughs> Arun, thank you so much for, for being on the show. This was such an honor. Uh, we really appreciate it. And again, you know, congratulations on, on your career keep going. I know that you're one of those marketing leaders that many will be paying attention to. So thank you for being here. This means a lot. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for having me here. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. 
From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.